0: Hey everyone, welcome to Cloud Masters. Um, I'm your host, Mm -hmm. Matan Bordeaux and I'm joined by my co-host, Sam Clark. Today we're joined by Ronald Bradford and Adam North. They're both senior cloud data architects at DoIT International. Um, Mm -hmm. They're here to highlight a forced version migration that's gonna be impacting um, the RDS MySQL customers out there. Um, But even Mm -hmm. if you're not using RDS, this episode is gonna be really applicable to any service uh, that you're using that's going through a forced migration either right now or in the future, uh, for instance, Cloud SQL and Google Cloud. Before we jump into mm-hmm. the topic, uh, Adam, Ronald, maybe share a few words about what you do in your day-to-day
1: and maybe even mm-hmm.
0: some history as Ronald, I know you're pretty uh, mm-hmm. pretty experienced with RDS specifically.
1: Uh, my name's Ronald Bradford. I'm based in the Eastern, US Eastern time zone uh, and my data specialty at Do It Here is to work with AWS RDS, Aurora, and MySQL specifically. Um, I've worked with the relational databases now for over three decades, starting with Ingress, then Oracle and MySQL, as well as uh, several other databases. Uh, and my time is also, in the past, I've spent time working for Oracle Corporation themselves and also MySQL Inc prior to Oracle acquisition. Adam Norris, uh, Senior Cloud of data, data
2: Architect here at Duet as well. Uh, I work with our customers across cloud, focused on data and databases. Um, my background is uh, a DBA. I worked for, for Bank of America for many years. Um, I also built a cloud data platform on AWS. So yeah,
0: whenever data is involved, um, I'm involved. So um, just to set, up, set the stage here, last year, as, as I understand it, many RDS MySQL customers were forced into a major version migration from MySQL 5.6 to 5.7 uh, due to end of life support and I guess no more availability of this version and uh, of 5.6. And we, and by we, I mean you two plus anyone else in your role focused on databases saw many instances of customers not being ready or not planning accordingly for this uh, forced migration and feeling a whole lot of pain as a result. And... In the upcoming months, RDS and MySQL customers are gonna be forced into another, even more major version of migration from MySQL 5.7 to 8.0, as 5.7 has reached the end of its, the end of its life. And this migration is gonna be way more impactful to customer application and business continuity than even 5.6 to 5.7. Why don't we want you to just start us off by telling us what exactly is going to happen? What is the current published timeline? And why does this matter to your application?
2: Yeah, sure. So I think um, just kind of important to highlight what what end of end of life means, end of support. Uh, and so basically, what it means is uh, MySQL community will no longer be providing features, critical bug fixes, security enhancements, anything. So all that will stop. Um, I think it's October of this year, and then the cloud providers will 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 come after them. And so I guess, uh, Ronald, if you want to talk a little bit more of what that looks like historically.
1: Uh, yes, Adam. So to um, understand a little bit more of the Mar- MySQL history, uh, they used to release major versions on approximately a three-year life cycle. Um, so MySQL 5.7 was actually released back in October 2015. Um, and 8.0 was released by Oracle Corporation after uh, they acquired Sun in April 2018 so 5.0 has actually been around now closer to eight years there hasn't been a major release after 8.0 due to some architectural changes that have enabled additional features and functionality via plugins uh, to be easily added to the version you know i just want to point out here the other major open source version product that rds supports is postgresql which has an annual release cycle uh, for new releases, and correspondingly, has an annual release cycle for deprecations of old versions. So generally, they keep about three years um, of versions available. So MySQL has actually been a little bit um, more lenient than that here. Yeah, so
2: I guess we didn't really meant we didn't really talk about why it matters to the application. And so, just to you know, basically, if you hit a bug or if there is some security vulnerability de- de- detected. Um, you know, you're pretty much going to be on your own after specific dates. And, uh, you know, everyone's uh, applications are using databases. Databases are at the center of everything. If, if your database is hacked or something like that, you know, your your business will be crippled, right? And so that's that's kind of the risk of, of letting this happen.
3: playing devil's advocate then and assuming that I'm a, um, a customer that doesn't care about security. Which obviously, we hope there's none of them around. Um, is this a case of I can leave my system running in an unsupported method or am I going to be unable to, for example, restart my server because it's going to automatically update itself? Or what's going to happen?
1: So Sam, that's an important distinction between running MySQL as a hosted product with, for example, on EC2 uh, versus MySQL being run run within AWS's managed services. So if you are running MySQL yourself, yes, you can continue to run an unsupported version of the product and you can accept the risk of not having any security patch updates or any level of support but the cloud providers who provide managed services basically you know move towards end of life for the product so that the cloud provider themselves aws in this example is not then necessary not required to perform those updates you know you know the upstream providers no longer performing them and they don't want to perform that as well so that's the distinction between a self-hosted version or an on-premise version and a managed service, but uh, you will be forced into that uh, simply because they want to remove that product from their feature set. And I, re- I recall reading, and maybe maybe
0: it was talking to you about this, um, Ronald, maybe, maybe you mentioned this to me, but did AWS offer recently some, uh, like a way to pay to continue using 5.7?
1: Uh, yes, so um, there are actually two ways to potentially avoid performing this upgrade to MySQL 8.0 in the current timeframe. Uh, that, that time frame at the start of this year was September of 2023 and later it was December and now it's been pushed back to March of 2024. Um, so there are two technical ways that you can avoid doing an RDS MySQL upgrade. The first is the option of extended support for an end of life product, which AWS announced just last month in September. Um, And while that sounds good, which means that you can delay a migration, the fine print will say that this will cost you approximately 40% for the first year, and then additionally higher charges for subsequent years. So you're not avoiding performing a migration, you still have to do it. You're just uh, delaying the inevitable and paying more for it. And there is a second option which is if you're using RDS MySQL, and that is to move to AWS's cloud native database, which is called Aurora. So you can move to a MySQL compatible version of RDS Aurora with with 5.7, and that'll buy you approximately another year uh, before you reach end of life of that version. However, switching from RDS to RDS Aurora is basically a migration. You need to perform the same tasks. So you're not avoiding a migration, And in fact, you're adding one because next year you're going to have to migrate from 5.7 to 8.0 in Aurora anyway. I I sort of, a a couple of times in this podcast have have come in and said,
3: I'm not the data guy, right? And so that's great to have you guys here. Um, Obviously, I've learned about databases over my career and and, and know a bit about them. Um, What's the major thing about a database engine upgrade in this situation? I mean, I, I guess if you're using a database like RDS at its most basic and you just got a relational database with tables and whatever, then that's a very simple upgrade because tables are tables and they still function the same under a new engine. Where are the big changes between five, seven, and eight that customers need to be aware of? So I'll take that and talk a little more generally. Pretty much across all databases,
2: whether it's open source, closed source, um, major database versions include overhauls of the database optimizer. And um, you just don't know what you're going to get from a performance perspective when when you... when you apply the new binaries when you upgrade your database it's just you never know what you're going to get and often you find yourself having to tweak parameters add new indexes rewrite queries completely um and i guess you know from my sql perspective i'd be curious to see to have uh, ronald kind of elaborate a little bit more uh but yeah that's just that's what i've seen it, it's there's always some.
1: so if you had a very straightforward database sam as you mentioned uh, it's quite possible that uh, you don't need to take on new features that are coming out of the new version, uh, but a change of version may have taken something that was deprecated and now has removed that piece of functionality. And if you haven't been keeping up to date in versions, you may need to you know, change some functionality in that respective. Um, another common problem is the introduction of additional reserved words. So something that did work in a prior version now is incompatible, uh, even in the most basic applications. But as Adam talked about, the change to the optimizer or a change to the concurrency model is generally the largest impact in any product. And between 5.7 and 8.0, it's very significant for a number of reasons. One of those reasons is is that MySQL, unlike many other products, supports different underlying storage engines. There's the default storage engine, which is NODB, and there are a number of other storage engines. And in 8.0, they have moved towards supporting um, they've In 8.0, they've moved to supporting, in addition to that, the Oracle's version of HeatWave, which is a data warehousing type solution. So the optimizer is now catering for different types of patterns of data which you want to retrieve. So just natively now, a query that may have performed a certain way using indexes in a particular way is now doing that differently. And so... The, the most basic thing is it has the query execution plan changed. The other thing that's really significant between 5.0 and 8.0 is, is that there was a lot of work done to improve the concurrency of the databases. There used to be a real a tipping point uh, in you know less than a thousand concurrent connections with MySQL. And in 8.0, they spent a lot more effort in enabling higher concurrent versions of systems to support many thousands of connections. So what actually happens is if you have a low volume uh, infrastructure, low concurrency, your queries will naturally take longer in 8.0, just simply because it's been re-architected to support greater concurrency of connections. So it's important to note that you know features can have a positive impact on new functionality or bug fixes or optimizations, but it can have a negative impact on more traditional ways that you may have worked on. Um, And just one more thing regarding the the queries. In early versions of MySQL, there were various ways in which you could trick MySQL into doing something specifically for the query execution as MySQL does not pin a query execution plan. It recalculates that every time. And people may have had these particular hints uh, or techniques or different types of indexes in place over prior versions. And now they just no longer apply in 8.0. And so uh, review of your structure, review of your queries is necessary to achieve uh, comparative performance between your current version and the next version coming up. So it leads me to a, to a follow-up question. Um,
3: my, my, my mentors back in AWS used to always bang on about the best practice here being separate your data and your code, right? Don't put your code in your database because I think I think a lot of people have done that, especially, you know, with Oracle, um, that was probably one of the most popular places to see millions of lines of code stored in a database. Um, is it realistic? Is it in, in the real world, is it realistic that people can separate that and can make these migrations easier? Or is that just not the case and everyone's going to have a lot of testing to do?
2: Yeah. I mean, I can, I can tackle that. So I think, yeah, regardless of where your code runs, whether it's inside a store procedure or. From the application, from a prepared statement, from SQL Alchemy or whatever. I mean, it still needs to be. It still needs to go through the optimizer. And so, um, there are, um, of course, going to be different nuances to to
1: each. Uh, but but ultimately, yeah, uh, every line of code is going to need to be tested. Yes, yeah, so I think the most uh, overlooked. Uh, requirement for a migration and actually the simplest of, of several core pieces of things that you need to do in any migration from a technical perspective or a management perspective is actually test your application. Um, when it comes to a relational database, that's very easy. You capture every SQL statement that you execute, you log it, you analyze it, you review it, you time it, and then you repeat that process on new versions. Um, and it's a very um, straightforward technique that doesn't require knowledge of the application uh, or a lot of other tooling so uh, it's very important that you um, you know have knowledge your application the knowledge your application is not really required you can sort of create very simple tooling to to form that task and most organizations don't actually capture the SQL that they're executing whether it's in a stored procedure or whether it's in the code Um, so um, as part of this Podcast, we are actually going to be releasing a couple of blog posts as well, talking specifically around how to capture SQL statements and the best ways to analyze those um, with regards to MySQL. You know, moving the code from the database into the application uh, simply just moves the complexity. Um, Adam made reference to SQL Alchemy. Uh, that is one of many ORMs that many application developers now use as an, yet another abstraction layer to generate SQL statements that uh, need to connect to the database. And ultimately, the greatest impact in performance for a database is not actually the SQL statements, it's actually a generation of The greatest performance impact is not actually SQL statements that have been well-written or need to be tuned. It's the generation of statements from ORMs that actually cause downstream problems and then the inability of the application team to know how to modify or adjust those, or to be able to add hints to them, you know, to be able to have a application that supports feature flags or rate limits so that you can control things more dynamically. Um, in between the interaction between the application and the database itself. Um, So, you know, testing individually is important, but as I also mentioned, um, particularly with 8.0 and and with any application, in real life, testing concurrency is the thing that you need to do. Uh, Everyone has different workloads. Those workloads can change at different times of the day. And so they may switch between write heavy to read heavy And the interaction of all of those can have an impact on the performance of individual statements. So testing is a multi-tiered approach, uh, but the first simple level to verify does something that work in the prior version, work in the current version, that's very easy to know, to see whether there are now warnings or errors, uh, or it's returning different results, which is also another key consideration. You need to make sure it actually performs what it's supposed to perform, and it's actually performing at an acceptable uh, response time.
2: This is not to say where you should place your business logic. That's a whole nother podcast. Um, but but either way, yeah, everything Ronald just said. You have to make sure you test everything thoroughly. And um, yeah, but but the age old debate of
3: uh, where I put my business logic is certainly a fun a fun <laughs> topic that could be a whole podcast. <laughs> so, so 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 what I'm what I'm hearing that is it it might make the actual. SQL server migration slightly smoother, depending on where the the data is or not, but it doesn't doesn't change the amount of effort you need to put into testing and ensuring that your code is still correct and still performant and efficient and so on.
1: Right. So when it comes to MySQL specifically, there's a well-known migration path, uh, which is sort of the migration of um, implementing a replica of the new version and to fail forward into that new version there isn't a well-trodden path for having an automated rollback and you know, replaying of operations that are occurring in a new version in case of an unsuccessful migration, you wish to fail back with no data loss. So the emphasis of this very common practice, which has been around for several decades with MySQL, uh, the rolling upgrades in the newer versions is to do as much preparation as you can before the point of no return. And there are very simple design patterns, architectural design patterns that applications can use that will enable you to do this two-way door testing, to be able to test the old version and the new version concurrency at no impact to the risk of, um, you know, your system being unavailable or not performing. And, you know, we, we harp on testing because that's the easiest way to have a higher level of confidence that when you do a migration that you have a a greater opportunity for success. Now with 5.6 to 5.7, there were some issues that caused customers' performance problems and there were features and deprecations as well. With 5.7 to 8.0, there is a guarantee that something will not perform as expected. And so testing will only take you so far, having a preparation plan of what do I do uh, when something does not perform as expected. Uh, what I, what's going to be the executive decision-making processes for continuing to fix forward or uh, accepting a data loss and to roll back. So there are, there's a lot more involved. And with, with, with this version change um, and the numerous the support cases that we have and the information over the time, uh, like I said, 8.0 has been around for now five years. So some organizations have been performing this operation in their own hosted environments for quite some time. Uh, there is just there's a guarantee that you will hit some problem, and having an appropriate plan in place um, is very important. And then doing as much testing beforehand just raises the level of confidence, so that a technical portion of the organization, operational manager, or um, an engineering manager can can put forth to business owners, yes, we have a high degree of confidence because we all this preparation work beforehand.
0: You've, you've kind of hinted at that with the testing. It sounds like it's one part of a roadmap or of a kind of a plan that people should follow for really any successful migration. But if you had an ideal roadmap for how customers can implement successful, successful migration, maybe generally, and also if there's any nuances with respect to RDS or MySQL, what would that be? What would that look like?
2: It all starts with, uh, with planning and um planning involves all sorts of things right uh, establishing a business owner establishing um what the goal is establishing um you know what the recovery point objective is so like how much data can we lose if the upgrade doesn't go well and so there's just all sorts of um things to consider and so um as part of this podcast we are also releasing a checklist that can kind of help customers look at uh, and kind of review some of these things that you might not think of especially so there's you know we work with a lot of startups and um so a lot of startups are just they've been on five seven that's what their startup was built on right and so they've never actually gone through this before and so if you haven't gone through this before having uh creating a checklist um or just using our checklist as a starting point to get your brain uh, thinking through some of these topics is going to be huge so that should be in the show notes here um and then you know on top of planning identifying all these things there's there's just different levels of testing right i mean there's smoke testing so uh, smoke test very quickly smoke testing basically means you know maybe we send one not one, one work item through the system and um, we just make sure there's nothing is on fire right that's that's what a smoke test is and you can do that as soon as possible right you don't have to wait until you've rehearsed all of your uh, cutover procedures you don't have to uh, you can just clone your dev database upgrade it and then launch the application right and just see what's burning um, and that's kind of going to give you a really good uh, initial set of things that you might need to remediate. So then your development team can start working on that stuff while you start
1: to work on the more complicated things. So, so um, you know, just to add also to that planning uh, portion of it, now that we're really moving into you know cloud native architectures for most organizations, and pretty much every organization will have integration partners. Um, those may be people that are actually consuming the data that you're providing, or you're integrating with third parties that may offer authentication or payment systems or other sort of things. So the, the, you know, the, the planning portion and the roadmap not only includes your internal requirements, which may also impact what are your engineering teams doing for product features, but you may also need to notify customers of any potential outages uh, that may happen. If you're going to choose to have an outage window, um, also making sure that it doesn't align with something else um, that's of significant nature that's coming forward. So the planning is, you know, you know, it's it's really um, has to take a holistic view from uh, the top down. Uh, and we talked about testing. Um, you know, the the you know, if we had four points, you know, one being planning, and two being testing, the other two would be always be prepared. Uh, no matter how well you test, we you need to have an assumption that something will fail. And so what is the strategy for that failure? You know, Adam talked about, you know, uh, the, uh, recovery point objective, you know, RTO, RPO, MTTR mean time to resolve are all very important things that should be documented and should be defined. Uh, and then also how long can we run in a degraded mode or a non-performing mode before a specific person has to make a decision and who is that person? Um, so being prepared means this sort of like, you know, you've run through a scenario for lack of a better word, you've done a DR test. Uh, and as Adam pointed out in a startup, you may have never actually gone through this before and in larger commercial organizations, people do do limited DR testing. And so it's very difficult if you're doing a migration, migrations always happen late at night or on the weekends and without the plan, then it's like, well, who am I going to wake up to help? you know, fix this uh, code problem or I have an issue. Can I raise a manager now to make a decision on these things? So that um, preparedness is, you know, in addition to the, the regular plan. And the last point I would say is, is that being proactive, proactiveness is the key to doing migrations. Um, You should never leave it to the last minute. You shouldn't leave it to the fifth notification that uh, AWS has sent you to upgrade your database. Because we we do not you do not want to get into the situation where RDS will automatically upgrade your database for you during your maintenance window, which will be at 2 a.m. on Sunday morning, and then you haven't done adequate testing, and then if your system is is not operating as expected, uh, you know who's going to fix that problem? You, you've now moved from being proactive to being reactive when you're on fire, and so if you don't have a good plan in place, you may make additional Rash decisions, which could have larger implications uh, moving forward, so that's important. And I I just say the other thing about proactiveness and 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 any type of these things is you can never you need to always anticipate the unexpected. Um, And I just want to go back to uh, something that happened several years ago. Most people didn't expect the meltdown spectre critical bug fixes. And if uh, practically every organization was affected and in some, in, in some organizations where I was working the time, that took three months out of engineering and operations time uh, to actually rectify these critical bugs that were identified. So that pushed every single thing out. Uh, and if you're planning to do a migration, uh, but now you can't do that because you're now stuck on a more critical um, security fix, then you know leaving things to the last minute can, overload resources and uh cause sort of like a rolling stone downstream effect it sounds like
0: based off just the timeline you described and the alternatives one being a 40 percent price hike to keep 5.7 the other you know adding a migration by switching to aurora for just a year it sounds like um anyone who's affected or impacted by this specific forced migration should if they haven't started already start now
1: Yes. I mean, if you have been running 5.7 now for um, up to a year, AWS would have already made notifications um, at the start of the year, the end of like September. So you would have already been receiving email and console notifications to do that migration. And yes, the date has slowly moved uh, and now it's between December and fe- February. Um, of course it may move slightly again, but Um, there are situations where AWS will just actually perform the migration. So, um, there, there is no easy out to this and sooner or later you will need to do a migration. And one of the apprehensions that people have is, is that if they're a newer organization, they've done one migration and it didn't work very well because they didn't run through a sort of a a solid playbook of being prepared and having a good test strategy and having uh, a what-if analysis for you know problem A or problem B. And so now they're a little shy of running another migration where really migrations themselves should become part of your regular release cycle. You need to have an open source cadence for um, software management for any type of software product. And so migrations should just be part of the extended version of your deployment lifecycle. Uh, and then it will become much more easier uh, for organizations to have a high level of confidence. Um, and nothing's worse than when you're a technical person and your, your house, your system is on fire and to then have um, um, management and executives go, well, how long is the system going to be unavailable because our customers are being impacted? Um, you know, it's, Sometimes it's very difficult to give an answer if you've not experienced it, if you've not role-played what happens in you know, this what-if scenario, what do I do when this situation happens? how do I cater for this and this other situation? Um, And then also when you actually run through those scenarios, you realize that there are engineering architectural practices that can support many situations, but your engineering organization or your product or your ORM framework does not offer those features. So by investing time ahead, again, this whole proactiveness also in, in architectural design, by investing that time ahead of time, you can mitigate downstream effects, Uh, whether that's, you know, sharding your application, whether it's supporting read-writes, can your application run in read-only mode, for example? Uh, And, you know, do you have rate limits and feature flags in place to be able to turn off certain functionality that may be uh, performing poorly, but enabling everything else to operate? So as you go through more and more migrations and you get better and better at planning, executing, and and seeing less and less percentages of failures, uh, you can also feed that back into, well, how do we make our entire life cycle, including software and engineering, and even management decisions, better to make migrations more part of um, a well accepted, well proven, and successful operation that you do. So we've talked um,
3: really heavily on, on specifically AWS RDS and and alternatives with Aurora. Um, Obviously, this is based on MySQL being a community edition and and an open source, essentially, product. Um, So the same issues are going to be happening with Google and Cloud SQL. Um, Have you guys got any uh, inside information or or do you know anything specific about what their plans are with Upgrade? I haven't seen any notification from Google about an extended support offering. So we don't have any official information, but... um
2: based on what we know right now, the notice should go out in December that uh, Cloud SQL will be off support by next December. So, so 2024 of December. December 2024 uh, is what we're
3: anticipating
2: to be the end of support for Cloud SQL,
3: and MySQL. So one of the things that I've noticed with Google customers um, is that Amazon sometimes tend to sort of over-communicate the maintenance windows and they'll tell you 30 times it's coming, it's coming, we've moved it, it's not happening, it is happening, it's not happening and and go on and on. Um, Google, on the other hand, tend to sort of just do it and check if you noticed. Um, Do do we know if they're sending out notifications on this one? Yeah. So the the policy is
2: they will send an email notification um, one year before the end of life. So that's why we're saying um so at the earliest it would be it would come out this month uh, or November because we, have, we haven't seen it yet in October, right so the earliest it'll come out is November which would mean you have until November um but based on uh i think there's um, one of those google community threads uh one of the uh, engineers mentioned December you know it should come out in December so it's looking like it's going to be at least December at the earliest and that and that would be in December of 2024 um So hopefully no surprises. That's how it's supposed to work. We will see. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And, uh, you know, I'll I'll add to that too, is that, you know, we've talked about AWS and we talked about GCP. Uh, We mentioned earlier running your open source database self-hosted on one of those clouds, um, or you may be running the database on-prem and you may be considering a cloud migration at some point in time in the future. So um, those are other you know, there are there are other impacts that don't fall into a managed service timeline for a forced migration, but may force any decision that where you are doing some type of moving to managed services or moving to the cloud, that you may then be forced into that change because the product is no longer supported as well. So, you know, there there is a um there are other users that there are other customers and there are other companies that have not yet considered moving to the cloud or have moved to the cloud in in part, um, that will be ongoing. So while we see that this is going to be a problem for AWS in the coming months, and we anticipate that'll be a problem for GCP customers up until the end of next year, there will be a long tail. There will be customers that will be migrating to manage services from cloud hosted services and customers migrating from on-prem that will also potentially go through this. So as part of, do it in our uh, support services that we offer. Every time we go through one of these cases, we identify something that's different. Um, you know, we have a number of data architects all around the world, 24 by seven. Uh, just myself, I'm just one person in the US and I have at least two two support tickets a week, uh, just on MySQL 5.7 to 8.0. And some of those are from, you know, how do we do it to, Oh, by the way, we you know just did a migration and we didn't tell you, and now we're on fire, um, and uh, that's a common uh, common situation that we have, uh, and that leads to the anti patterns that the customer has um, used, and as opposed to coming back to sort of being more regimented in how do you perform a migration, irrespective of the product and irrespective of the version, um, and and how to avoid uh common problems that we see regularly and I will say I've been doing 5.7 to 8.0 migrations um at, in and outside of AWS now for more than 3 years and we still see edge cases of something that I hadn't seen in this situation before um, you know it's it's a you know a less specifically used thing such as a you know um, a geometry column um or or some other particular setting that is not as common so um, the list of known problems uh, is not definitive right now. Uh, it's certainly reaching an apex, and we've seen a lot of those. Our knowledge base has a lot of those, and so we will continue to refine that. And, you know, once we overcome AWS, we move to GCP, we should have a pretty good idea of, you know, most of the possible implications. As Sam is crossing his fingers, uh, yes. Uh, that is definitely not the right way to plan and strategize database migration.
3: Real man testing, Rob. On, to-
1: <laughs> on the
0: topic of, uh, of ed- well, not the really, kind of the opposite of edge cases, I, I, I love for anything, really, I, I love example scenarios. You mentioned two tickets a week, at least just on this. Are there any interesting examples or experiences you had with customers, whether it's like a forced rollback or or anything else that maybe those people listening or watching this can learn from? Mistakes made, what, what, what should be done instead?
1: Um, yes, there are a couple of common patterns that we see. Uh, the first is, is that the customer has already performed the migration. Um, and as a Do-It customer, we were unaware that that was happening. Um, we weren't involved in the, you know, have you checked this and you have you checked this? And so we get a, we get an urgent ticket, we're on a call immediately with the customer and we're trying to uh, understand their exact problem. Um, Certain, uh, depending on the customer, we may not have intimate knowledge or depending on the time zone in which they've done that, um, our architects in those time zones may not have intimate knowledge of the customer's environment and architecture. And, um, you know, a case earlier this year, you know, there was uh, a situation where the customer decided that they needed to make, they needed to fail back. Uh, and so they hadn't had a plan for that and they hadn't considered, well, that we would lose data uh, with regards to that. And so, you know, th- these are several anti-patterns that come into play, which is like, okay, do you have a plan of how long you'll run in a degraded mode before you choose to revert? What is the impact of data loss? Um, and, you know, in this particular situation, this was a classic example, like many, where oh, we just migrated, but we didn't actually do any testing um you know we didn't do any load testing um we don't have a framework in place to be able to verify you know something in version a versus something in version p we, we haven't logged that oh now we've shut down the old server so now we can't actually see what it did look like uh or they don't have appropriate observability in place so having those things um in place that's something where do it can help assist in like that checklist that adam was talking about you know do you have a b and c ready um, the other, uh, big issue that I'm seeing right now is, is that people are now seeing that they need to do this migration. And we talked earlier about, you know, RDS MySQL and RDS Aurora MySQL, which sound very similar. Uh, they are compatible in terms of the communications between the server, but the underlying architecture is different and the performance implications are different, uh, as well as the, you know, uh, cost um and um features that are available um and, and a recent case i just had was a you know customer wanted to move from actually running on ec2 directly to aurora and and change a version at the same time as well as take functionality which they were using uh in their hosted version which is not supported in rds so um it's important to highlight all those things and, and to say to the customer yes you're planning on going from Um, situation a to situation d but really you need to consider a migration from a to b and a migration from b to c and a migration from c to d so that if you do encounter any unforeseen issues where's the root cause of that problem Um, and to have a plan in place to look at it and that doesn't mean at the end that you need to actually perform three migrations but what it means is that you have to test those three migrations uh, to an adequate level of satisfaction um, to minimize what the problem is. So I'm seeing people now that are moving to, we want to adopt cloud native MySQL services or PostgreSQL services, and they're running older versions and they're hitting the exact problem that, that this podcast is all about. The MySQL community version has reached end of life. It's October. It is now no longer officially supported for bug fixes uh, or support tickets. And if you're running that for an older version, um, you have to make a decision, how long do I accept that risk before I need to either perform an in a, an upgrade on my own host service, um, which will be the same migration problem between 5.7 and 8, or do I move to a cloud managed service, um, which will offer different features and functionality, but is still a migration. You can't get out of the migration. The, the migration is inevitable.
0: That one example just sounds great. The customer trying to do three different, very complex things
1: simultaneously. Uh, the customer wasn't actually aware that they were actually going to go through three complicated. Mig- I think that was the important thing. Was this is a good example where a customer was proactive in seeking input and expertise from our you know deep pool of experts. And this this was the case that that I was working with. Was I was able to point out that. You know, these are actually individual migrations on their own and each of them have an implied risk. Uh, so um, a, a takeaway from customers and prospects that are listening to this podcast is is that Do It does also help customers in just discussing what is the approach that you would take with performing this migration. Um, you know, what have you seen that have been the... Um, situations that are most easily uh, avoidable and um you know what are the risks that you you could see
0: i think in australia they refer to that as a as a kangaroo's breakfast
1: that type of situation mm, no i think the australians no. are all saying no i uh,
0: I, I, I quickly coffee, looked up i quickly kangaroo. looked up what's a what i quickly looked up what's a, what's the equivalent australian euphemism for a storm because that situation sounded like
3: storm Sorry. I think kangaroos breakfast is the
1: sort of thing they use in the tourist books.
0: Well, this yep. is why I that's need to what? upgrade to ChatGPT 4.5 and not uh-huh. use this 3.0 I believe stuff.
1: that's the reason why uh, people think that Foster's is Australia's best beer. Uh, Foster's <laughs> Australia's best export beer because Australians won't drink it.
0: <laughs> Sorry, Adam, you were going to say something? I was just going to say that um,
2: the... Kind of other most common thing we see is just a performance regression, and that's true whether it's MySQL 57 seven to eight, Postgres, nine six to eleven or thirteen, whatever, right? And so use the built in tools that RDS and, and Cloud SQL give you. Right, make sure that um, you have captured your performance baseline. You can do this using uh, Performance Insights. You can do it using Query Insights in Cloud SQL. Um, make sure that you can clone in an instance and you run the same test against the upgraded instance and make sure you're capturing the data and you can just compare the performance before and after right it's not um it's not the hardest thing to do but a lot of customers just don't take the time to reproduce their workload in the staging you do that it'll really set yourself success and you can just you can do it using cloud data tools mm. to, to a reasonable reasonable degree of certainty obviously there's other tools out there that go deeper different performance, but i mean if you don't have any of that stuff just use the built-in. Mm-hmm. Performance metrics that they give you a reproducer. So.
0: Yeah, we're running up on time. I just wanted to see if there's any final thoughts. Donnie Brook was the phrase I was thinking of. Please, please.
1: There we go. I must admit, Whoa. you know, it's not common that there are two Australians on a phone call unless we're dealing with our APAC colleague.
0: This is a first for Cloudmasters.
1: Uh All right. there will be I'm sure there will be more. Um, we have a lot of, a uh, lot of very highly skilled individuals, um, in APAC. And so, um, I'm sure you'll get a chance to, to listen to those people. Um, I guess, you know, any parting words, you know, as Adam said, you know, um, using instrumentation and knowing the instrumentation is important. It doesn't need to be a major migration. It simply could be that the, um, small version of Embedded code of a Node.js library that everybody uses changes, and that now impacts the application automatically. And if you didn't have appropriate observability in place, then you may not know that now that's performing uh, not as well as it was previously. Um, that's not even a you know a, a, a developer engineer's introduced issue by changing some existing functionality. There are many layers in which a regression can occur, and so um, having an audit trail of the knowledge of your application, how it works, how it performs, um, what what it how um, having an audit trail of how your application performs, uh, its latency, its um, throughput capabilities, and actually even the results that it returns. Um, is important so that you can always be testing that, and you can be adding that to a normal CI/CD pipeline, a normal life cycle for rolling out of even just you know changes for your normal engineering product. So it's just a good practice all around, and it's not limited to databases, and not limited to caches. Um, it should be um, applicable to pretty much anywhere in which you want to store and retrieve data great final words
0: um
1: i i i also i also
0: didn't anticipate this cracking over 40 minutes um but i think just because rds is one one of the most widely used services in aws at least among our customers and just the lessons learned can really apply to all services um i'm also not surprised that we were able to to fit so much so much content in this time um but thank you ronald and adam for joining uh and to those listening or watching, stay tuned for the next episode and have a great day, wherever you are. Thanks, all. Thanks, See guys. Okay. CloudMasters is a DoIt multimedia production hosted by Matan Bordo, product marketing manager at DoIt, and Sam Clark, technical account manager at DoIt. Our guest this week, Ronald Bradford, senior cloud architect at DoIt, and Adam North, also a senior cloud architect at DoIt. Editing and production of Cloud Masters is handled by me, Crispin Stanbeck, Multimedia Content Producer at DoIT. To hear more episodes of Cloud Masters, and to learn more about how DoIT delivers the true promise of the cloud with ease, not cost, visit DoIT.com for additional resources.